Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are now going to go into God's Word in the book of Zephaniah. And so if you would turn there with me, please. Again, hopefully as you learn to find your way around Scripture, you'll find books like this more easily, but in case you need a little assistance, we're on page 789 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, upcoming sermons, we have three more, including this week in Zephaniah. We'll actually take a break. We'll do two in Zephaniah, one break. Jonathan will be preaching in two weeks. And then we'll finish the book of Zephaniah, which is one of the happiest parts of Scripture in chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. We're going to do that on Palm Sunday. Seems like a perfect Palm Sunday text. So lest you think too highly of me, I didn't plan that. It just happened to be. Except I said, Jonathan, preach something else so we can do this one on Palm Sunday. And then uh, after our Easter series, we'll turn to the Gospel of John and start a series out of it. So we have one more week. This week in the judgment section on Zephaniah, where he returns after preaching against the sins and judgment of the surrounding nations to the sins and judgment of Judah. And so I ask you to bear with the preaching of God's word against your sin uh, patiently. Give it attentiveness. And I want to specifically ask those of you who come here habitually, that is, you come out of habit but you aren't as engaged in the entirety of life, if you know what I mean. Maybe you're not even aware of this. Or maybe you are and you'd like to have something done about it. I think one of the gifts of God in giving us scriptures that are about God's anger, about fearing Him, is it has the ability to wake up those who are sleeping maybe uh, more than other texts. And so please give ear. This is God's word. It's true. It is meant for you to have eternal life. Um, but too many name the name of Christ, say they're a Christian, but really have no life in him, in you. And so that, that's what we hope for this morning. So let me read. I'm going to read Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. He's speaking here of Jerusalem. So he's turning his attention now again to preaching against the sins of God's people and specifically the place where God dwelt among them in the temple in Jerusalem. And so that's what he's talking about here. She says, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials, her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their embattlements are in ruins. 
I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation of the earth, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Let's ask God's help. Father, please deal bountifully with us now that we may live and keep your word. Please, Father, open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. God, your testimonies are our delight. Please teach us now to give ourselves to the hearing of your word that they may be our counselors. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll have eight sermons in total out of Zephaniah. And the first six come in uh, sections that are about God's judgment. The book of Zephaniah is neatly structured. The first chapter and into chapter 2, verse 3, are specifically preaching against the sins of God's people. You remember in First Peter, we read that judgment needs to begin with the household of God. That's because you and I are so prone and find it so easy to understand the need for God to judge the world out there, but not our sins in here. And so we must begin with us. That's how Zephaniah begins. And then in chapter 2, verses 4 to 15, as we heard last week, God pronounces judgment against the nations. He is God over all. He made all things. He is judge over all nations. And He will bring the nations into judgment through His Son, the King over all kings. This is to teach us to fear God. There is no salvation except through Jesus. There's no salvation anywhere else except in Christ. But now we return as Zephaniah kind of concludes his judgment section against the sin in the world by turning his gaze again to us, to you. Our text begins with this three-letter word, woe. You remember that Jesus used similar language in Matthew 23. He announces, pronounces woe against this very same city. He says, oh, before lifting a lament. So don't divide again God's word. You don't have in the Old Testament a mean, angry God. In the New Testament, a nice, kindly, gentleman God. He is the same God today, yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And so the, the Savior sent to die does judge. And here this word woe is a term of strong, strong threat. It would have three or four exclamation points after it. It's meant to grab your attention. He is saying against the sins of people, woe is upon you. 
reminds us of Isaiah. Woe is me. Woe am I. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of uncleanness. My eyes have seen the terror of the holiness of God. Again, we are being taught here that we don't fear God like we should. We sin without much thought that there will be any, that God sees it. We don't believe that. So can you hear that word woe and not have some feeling of fear that God sees everything about you? So this first verse is an exclamation of judgment. Then verses 2 to 4 give the reasons for it. They're stubborn in verse 2. They don't listen. What don't they listen to? Well, the preaching of God's word. They can't be bothered to consider it. In fact, their minds are other places when God's word is being proclaimed. And Are you any different? They don't trust in their Lord. That word Lord is all in caps. It's a reminder of the salvation God worked in bringing His people out of bondage. They don't trust for their salvation in Him alone. They don't even consider that they need it. And then in verses 3 and 4, those that God has given to shepherd His people, their rulers, their kings, their prophets, their priests, are utterly useless to them. Their rulers just feed themselves and leave nothing for their people. They just care only for their own gain and not for the good of the people. The prophets are fickle, treacherous. They don't preach the word as it should be against the consciences to the conscience of the people. They, as Jeremiah says, just comfort the people too easily. They deal too lightly. They're treacherous. They can't be trusted. They sound like they're preaching God's word. The doctrine is right, but there's no help in it for the people. And then the priests profane the worship. The worship of God is profane. They don't care that God's people's, the hearts of God's people are right coming before God. They violate God's law. But God is different in verse 5. Whereas the people are utterly corrupt in their worship, God every day, God every day shows Himself to be just. Every time the sun comes up on the earth, God's justice, God's righteousness is shown, but the unjust will never ever allow themselves to feel any shame. They always have an excuse. They always have a reason why they're not at fault, why somebody else is. They, they won't feel the right shame. They won't experience. They won't allow. They don't have the faith to admit their situation before the holiness of God. And so God's judgment is poured out in the world. And verse 7 gives us the reason that God every day shows himself to be righteous and just as a judge, that we might fear him. Now, when God speaks like this, it isn't as though God is working in the world and kind of going, I wonder if they'll listen today. He's just condescending to us, speaking in everyday language. 
He's showing us his purposes in doing his daily discipline and judgment on the earth to teach us to fear him. Surely they'll fear me. Surely as you see every day, God's judgment in the world, specific acts of his judgment, maybe in the lives of people you know, you see God's judgment against them. You see it in the news. And God is doing that communicating to you to fear him that you should have a heart of wisdom that learns to say how much more do i deserve what they've been given that you might again go to christ but because we won't fear him because we won't accept correction in verse 8 the judgment section concludes with the fire of my jealousy uh, all in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So as Zephaniah began with an apocalyptic view of judgment amongst his God's people, so it concludes that with that. It, he, he goes all the earth so that we might realize again God's great hatred of sin. And how much more we who know what we've sung, uh, what we've already sung this morning, that when Jesus hung on the cross and suffered what he suffered, what we are seeing is God's hatred against our sin. That God wouldn't spare his only son, but put him to grief. Because he who knew no sin became our sin. And again, we won't fear God. So do you have any fear of God's wrath? So we see, we've heard the wages of sin is death. This is what it means. This is what the death do us for our sin deserves. And so we are given in these verses reasons for God's wrath. I want to again address what I addressed several weeks ago is the question that often comes to mind where you maybe are confused over this reality that we as Christians have forgiveness. Christ was judged for our sins. And so we don't have to fear God because what's there to fear? Jesus paid the penalty. I'm free. And rather, I don't know that there is a a, a really helpful answer to that except to say, but doesn't the Bible tell you to fear God? And that you... You don't need an answer. What is needed is actually just humility. To not try to be wiser than simply accepting what God's Word says. To know that, yes, it is true that if you are in Christ and you have sincere living faith in Him, you couldn't I mean, you have complete and utter freedom to come before God in everything. He welcomes you as you welcomed your own children in this world when they were born with that kind of joy and delight. We'll see that at the end of this book. That is true for us. And it is true that we should not fear those who can merely kill the body. We should fear him who can kill the body and cast our souls into hell. And then you should not ask a question after that. You shouldn't say, but 
How do those work together? No, no, just, just, just say, just be quiet. Both are true. What I'm getting at is the main thing we see in these verses is our stubbornness. Verse 2, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. Verse 5, the unjust knows no shame. Verse 7, surely you'll fear me. Surely you'll accept correction. But no, all we have is questions, our questions. And all that our questions are, all that your questions are is just stubbornness. And we use this illustration all the time. Don't get tired of it. You see this in your children. When they ask the questions, why, the question why, it's not sincere. They're not actually curious wanting data. They just want to assert themselves over you as their parent. They want the parent to bend the will to the child and not bend their will to you. And so they ask, seeming very sincere, why? That should enrage you as a parent because all you're seeing there is the stubborn, hard-hearted refusal of a child to do what all of nature knows to do, submit to the parent. But you're no different because all you want to know is why. Why should I fear God? Doesn't he love me? And, and you don't know yourself well enough to know that all that is is stubbornness. All you're saying to God is no. All you're saying to God is no. And so we need to fear God. That's, that's the message of the first three and a half chapters of Zephaniah. Just be quiet. Just hush and fear him. And one of the truths of the fear of God is that it's really good for you. The fear of God is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The beginning of wisdom of good living on this earth to the glory of God and for your joy and the good of your family and church and community that kind of wisdom begins the source of it. It can't be gotten without the fear of God. And so in these, these preachers sent by God to teach you and to teach us to fear Him is meant to teach you wisdom. It's meant to teach you to fear God and enjoy the fruits of it. The wise man Throughout the book of Proverbs, the book of James submits himself to discipline. Why? Because it teaches us to fear God. Again, the main fault of we see in ourselves in these verses is our refusal to accept correction. So there it is. Ask yourself this. How good are you at receiving correction from others? Are you willing to receive correction wisely and receive it as a gift from God to help you be a better, more godly man or woman or child? Kids, you like it? No? Stanley's the only honest one here this morning? Yeah? No father 
you know, a father who loves his children will discipline them. I think this is one of the major faults we have in coming to a book like this. There's no discipline anymore in the world. Children, parents refuse to say no to their children. They will not say no. Moms will not say no to their children who don't want to eat what she's made for dinner, and so she makes something else. They won't say no to their sons who don't want to do their math right now. And then they can't understand why they're doing math at 6 p.m. It's because you won't say no to your child. And the reason God has given you to your children is to learn to teach them to be correctable, to be teachable, to be humble, to accept no from you so that they can learn to accept no from Him. And the reason so many refuse to accept God's no is because they've never been taught to accept your no. This is why in the book of Proverbs it says that if you refuse to discipline your child, you're setting your heart on their death. That's true, too, here in the church. You can't stand to be told no by somebody. A young woman cannot stand to be told no by an older woman to how much skin she's showing. She will come up with a billion excuses why it's okay. It's just what everybody's wearing. You don't understand. A young married couple can't understand why they're to say no to contraception. Because they're so wise. And they just want to learn how to be married together and love each other for a while before a child. They, they don't understand that they are saying no to God's blessing and they are, are seeing children as a, a burden, as an obstacle to their marital harmony. That's their view of children. They have a right to decide when God will bless them with life. And so we're unteachable. We're unteachable. God tells us in 1 Samuel 15, 22, that the Lord has great delight, not in just our glad songs of worship, but in obedience. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. To obey is better than to sing. It's better to listen than to sacrifice the fat of rams. That's what we're hearing throughout this. Focus a second, if you would, on the second half of verse 2 here. There's another reason why we need to fear God. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. One of our main motivations for being teachable, listening to God, is that He didn't condemn you for your sins, but condemned His Son in your place. And so those who see in the death of Christ this incredible love and mercy of the Father, then delight to obey Him and to be taught by Him and to be corrected by Him. And so one of your, our failures in being teachable and humble in response to God's discipline is that we haven't yet in our souls grasped the wonder of salvation. It's unbelief towards what God has done for us in Christ. She does not trust in the Lord. She will not draw near to her God. How few trust God. So one of the mothers, says Calvin, that gives birth to this kind of stubbornness is that we do not have this gratitude, 
in love for God, being thankful that He would call us His children because of the sacrifice of His Son. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. To see yourself as completely unworthy, undeserving of the least drop of any goodness from God. And yet He gave His Son for you. And our response of faith is to just say yes to God and to accept from His hand whatever He brings into your life in order to further discipline you and sanctify you out of your lusts and demands and unrighteousness and evil thoughts and harsh judgments against others. So let's say you have an ache in your body. Even in, let's say, a big toe, it hurts. Isn't that God's loving discipline for you? That you might feel some slight pain in your body, which is reminding you of what you actually deserve for your sin. God is disciplining you that you might turn again in faith to trust in the Lord who saves you. Or let's say somebody harshly says something against you. Mean. It's not right. Isn't that God's kindness towards you? To bring somebody against you, to prick your pride again, and to show in your response how unwilling you are to ever hear from anybody anything negative against you. Isn't he humbling you? And you are being taught again to trust in the one who has given you salvation in Christ. So God is giving you reasons to fear him, reasons why his judgment against us for our sin is right. But the main reason is within God himself. Look at verse 5. The way to get your mind around what's going on in this verse, one of my kids was really helpful at the dinner table. We were talking about this, and they helped me understand what was happening here. And I think the way to help you get it is, You're all, most of you, I would assume, are familiar with Lamentations 3. You could say it. The steadfast love of the Lord never, His mercies are made new every morning. What is that saying? It's saying, singably, poetically, that every time the sun rises, God is going to be merciful again to you. And His mercies will be tangible in that day and that thought that yes every day to God's children his beloved saved children he will again be merciful today is supposed to calm your anxiety it's supposed to help you not be worried about tomorrow because God will give you the mercy you need today and then when tomorrow comes his mercy will be made new that morning again it'll be renewed every day Isn't that a good thought? And so he's teaching you how to view the world. To be looking every day for a new mercy of God. To be grateful for it. To anticipate it. To to trust him. We sang it. All of our tomorrows. His his mercy is, is new every day. But that's not all that he's teaching you every day. He's got another thing he shows every morning. 
shows his mercy to you every morning again and all throughout the new day. And every morning he shows forth his justice. Every day, God is going to give you a display of his justice, of his righteous anger against sinners. Every day. Every day is going to be a day where his mercies are going to be made new and you can look at those and rejoice in him and be grateful and say, I can't believe I get to be here and be a part of this. And every day his justice, his wrath is going to be shown. And it's an opportunity for you to look and say, oh my God, have mercy on me. I deserve that too. God, how could you be patient with this world anymore? Look at this. I can't believe I would think like that. I can't believe I would want that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Your justice is shown in the world. That's what I deserve. Or maybe another way is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is communicating in this world constantly what he's like. But we really, really like to hear the sweet song of his new mercy every day. But we don't like to hear the minor key of his justice every day. Why is he doing that? Why is he every morning showing forth his justice? What for? Do you know? Verse 7. Surely they'll fear me when they see this every day. Surely as I give my children daily lessons, teaching them that I am just and I am holy and I am pure, surely they'll learn day in and day out to fear me. Kids, you do math every day. Sometimes you even have to do um, those math fact sheets. You know, today we're going to learn how to times everything by two. And you have to do those every day, right? Ten lines of ten questions of math facts. You ever do that? And then after you do that, what do you learn? You can times anything by two, just like that. It's pretty fun. And then you can show off. And you go home and you say to your younger sibling, what's seven times two? And your younger sibling goes, uh, four. And you say, no, dummy, it's 14. What's 12 times two? Right? Because you've learned it. You've learned it by the repetition of practicing. That's a good gift to have repetition. It's a, it's an essential trait of a teacher or a trainer or a mentor is repetition. Do the same thing with basketball or with violin playing, some business practice. God is repeatedly, every day, showing forth his justice, teaching us to fear him. Surely they'll fear me. That's why. But instead, we do the opposite. We actually respond to God's daily lesson of his justice with more eagerness to do what displeases him. That's the condition of us apart from Christ. You ever do that? Double down on your stupid? Wives, you do that to your husbands, right? You say something disrespectful, and rather than owning it, you double down. 
Because you're so stubborn. You can't be bothered to ever be wrong before your husband. Ever. We do it before God all the time. And so that's it. Fear God. Now let me close with this. We brought up at the beginning of the sermon series Manasseh. Manasseh was a king just before this time who was really evil. As evil as could be. In fact, the summary of his kingship was Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations that the Lord destroyed. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. And so God was very angry against Manasseh and brought foreign nations and he was captive and brought to a foreign land and he repented. Manasseh killed his own children in the fire before God's. Like he burned his own children alive and sacrificed to the gods. And it says, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to God, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again into Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. So with God, there is forgiveness. God brought terrible judgment against Manasseh to humble him, even though he committed just awful, awful sin. So you too. What is this meant to teach you but then to turn to God and see his forgiveness and mercy? That's what it's for. That's why we're going to do the Lord's Supper now after the sermon. Hopefully you have some shame. Hopefully you have some sense of, my God, have mercy on me. I keep doing these wrongs. God, be merciful to me. And he is going to say, yeah, come and sit down at dinner. Eat of my son. Drink of my son. That's what this is for. To communicate in our hands, to our eyes, to our taste buds. God is merciful. Let's pray. Father, please teach us to fear you. Forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our lying to ourselves. Forgive us for our hard-hearted, stubborn refusal to be teachable or correctable at all. Help us, God, to humble ourselves. Please have mercy on us in this. Help us to be a more humble, teachable people. We need your mercy. What else do we have in this world under your judgment? Give us hearts that might that fear you, that we might learn wisdom. So, God, we come now to the Lord's Supper asking you to convince us of your goodness, to reassure us of your love, and to help us in our minds and our consciences to be utterly free before you because of Christ who is paid at all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.